This is the first Lord's Day of the final month of 2023, and it is our practice on the first Lord's Day of the new month to open the discussion in our Sunday school for questions and answers, an open forum sort of format. And uh, I did receive from Tom yesterday a question that rose out of the Bible study that's held at his home, uh, I think uh, twice a month on Friday nights, and uh, concerned uh, a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 in which Paul quotes from the 68th Psalm. And so um, this might be good for us to look at the way in which Paul uses the Old Testament just to see the way in which the Old Testament and the New Testament correlate with one another, as well as to have a deeper, richer appreciation of exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 when he says that Jesus ascended on high, let captivity captive, gave gifts to men. Those gifts are later on defined in verse 11 as being apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um, so let's just turn briefly to uh, Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Um, this is not an easy psalm to understand. It's filled with uh, what technically is called hapex legomenons. <laughs> I like that one, don't you? Hapex legomenons. That basically means they're words that are found only once in the, in the Old Testament. So we have a Hebrew word that doesn't have any other places in the Old Testament where it's used. That's called a, it's a one of a kind. It's uh, so you can go down the passages and say, well, what does this mean in the light of those passages? So that's one area where you get a little bit stumped. And uh, there's just other things that just seem to be ambiguous. What is he talking about? Could be one of more meanings. But I think if we just look at the basic flow of the thought to try to understand what's Paul getting at in quoting Psalm 68 in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, this is a psalm that speaks of a God who moves in the earth. And that movement of God in the earth is described as being the rider upon the clouds. You see it in verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. And uh, that gets opened up a little bit later on when a familiar um, metaphor is used um, when it says um, verse 32 O kingdoms of the earth sing to God sing praises to the Lord to him who rides in the heavens the ancient heavens behold he sends out his voice his mighty voice ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel his power is over the sky in the skies um, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He's the one who gives power and strength to his people. So um, God moves on the clouds. Uh, chariots of God are mentioned in verse 17. Uh, those are all ways in which you get from place to place. If you could ride on a cloud, well, man, he's, uh, that'd be interesting to be able to move along on a cloud as the cloud does its passage through the skies from place to place. Well, it's expressing the fact that God is in every place. God is the God who, 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 who relates to his world in ways in which he, like the clouds, uh, he moves through the deserts, it, it says in um, 
the earlier passage in, uh, you know, it's in the verse 4. Uh, he rides through the deserts. Uh, what deserts? Well, I think in the context, it's the deserts of Sinai uh, that is mentioned um, in the words of verse 8. Uh, well, verse 7, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Uh, so God is the God who marched through the deserts with his people, led them to Mount Sinai, and there's a sense in which that presence on Mount Sinai was, from the human perspective, an ascent to a mountaintop. From God's perspective, you might say it's God humbling himself to the earth, coming down and uh, manifesting himself uh, in Israel's life. But he, he's the God who was in Israel as well who bared his mighty arm, who brought out his people from Egyptian bondage, who took them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. All these metaphors that are used of how God works and how God moves and how God acts and God affects his will and his holy purpose in saving his people from their sins. I'm sorry, saving his people from bondage. From I'm getting ahead to the New Testament understanding. But in the Old Testament, it's from the bondage and servitude and slavery and captivity that they knew in in Egypt. So you know, that's really the, the idea. A God who acts, who moves, who works in redemption, who delivers and rescues his people from their servitude, who ascends a mountain and makes himself known in their midst. And so again it speaks about Sinai now is his sanctuary, in the sanctuary. Uh, so the location, it's interesting as well. Verse 15 says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yea, this is kind of humorous, I think, because it's the mountain feeling envious. And the fact that God made his abode on Mount Zion. And so Mount Bashan is thinking, what does that puny little mountain get this honor that's denied to me? I mean, there are bigger mountains than, than Zion. You, you think of Hermon to the north, that's quite a lot bigger. Majestic and snow-peaked in the, in the, in the winter. And, uh, but yet God chooses Zion. He makes his, his, his home on Zion, his temple there. Um, and the other mountains look on with envy. <laughs> and they, they, hate, they hate the fact that this honor is denied to them and given to uh, another mountain. But in verse 18, it speaks of this whole matter of God moving, God working for saving his people, rescuing his people, um, ascending Sinai, but yet also going, uh, leading them through the wilderness to the land of promise where ultimately he comes and settles his home upon Mount Zion. That's really the picture. And the picture is in verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now it's possible he's still thinking about deliverance from Egypt, or it's possible he's, might, he's thinking of the ascent to Zion, and the fact that in doing these things, making God's presence known, God is at work in the world, uh, freeing captives, leading them out of bondage. The people of Israel in Egyptian bondage, in Egyptian captivity, were brought out to worship God on that mountain, on Mount Sinai. 
And um, again, it's the picture of the, um, the warrior who wins the victory over his enemies and who leads out the captives. Uh, generally speaking, the picture is in terms of human wars is they're leading out the, the, the defeated soldiers. The defeated soldiers are in their train. The victor saying, look at what I've gained from my victory. I'm leading out all these people I've taken captive. They become now captive to me. And now they're going to come under my authority. Well, there's a sense in which that happens with regard to Israel being delivered from Egyptian bondage. They're not free just to go their way and do what they want. It was to become God's people. It was to be God's people uh, owned by him, in whom they now seek to honor uh, this God of, of salvation, this God of rescue, this God of redemption, as their God enters into covenant with him, becomes his people. Uh, so God's leading out the captives. They're his possession. He's won them by his own triumph over his enemies. And then the picture is that the, cat, that the victor is receiving gifts. And usually in the uh, victory marches that would accompany uh, the victory in a battle, the people would throw garlands and roses and, you know, whatever they could to show their appreciation for the victorious um, uh, general that has come now back uh, with a host of captives that he's won uh, for his country. Uh, that's the picture of God. And God is receiving gifts uh, 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 from men here, Receiving gifts among men. Uh, later on, it says in, um, let's see, in verses, uh, it speaks about the kings giving gifts to God, and my eyes not running upon it. Um, 29. There, there it is. There it is. Summon your power, O God, 28. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us because of your temple at Jerusalem. So here's Zion. Your temple at Jerusalem. Kings shall bear gifts to you. They'll come bringing their gifts. They come and bring their offerings. Now, when people come to bring gifts to God, is it because God needs those gifts? I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's the awareness that even the Old Testament gives that what God receives is something that is something he, in fact, has given us first. Uh, it's First Chronicles, I believe it is, 29. First Chronicles 29 has that prayer. Um, I think a hymn is fashioned after it. That we uh, we don't usually sing it, but we don't usually sing a song with our offerings. But even the hymnal, there's a song about we give you but your own, right? Well, that's the idea, and it's found in First uh, Chronicles 29. First Chronicles 29, as the offerings of the temple are being brought um, for, um, in the days of David, and in uh, 29 and verse. Uh, Therefore, David blessed the Lord in his pre the presence of all the assembly. David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. You know, the, the end of the Lord's Prayer, as it's said today, the ending is really from here. The original, there's really very few early texts that, that have the Lord's Prayer concluding, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Where did it come from? It came from here. Lord, yours is the greatness, the power, and the glory. 
and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. You own them. All that's in the heavens, all that's in the earth belong to you. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. So whatever we give to you, you gave first. You're the one who has been the giver. And we just give in response to what you have already given and blessed us with. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great, uh, make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. We've just given you your own. We've just given back to you what you've given to us. And so, whatever sense God's giving gifts, I'm sorry, people are giving gifts to God, it's really responsive to the fact that it's God who gives gifts first. When you think of Israel coming out of Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai, um, again, they spoiled the Egyptians and they got all kinds of wealth from the Egyptians. And all that was to construct the temple. But again, God's not a God who dwells in temples made with hands. But he's going to have a presence in the midst of their people. But at least they're giving him what God has blessed them with. And then it is God who really is the giver. God gives the law. God gives the covenant. God gives the instructions for the tabernacle. Even at Sinai. They're getting all these things from the hand of God who uh, has already given them so much and redeeming them from, from bondage. And then anything they come to give to him is but what he has at first given to them. And that's important to see, that that's the perspective of the Old Testament. Because a lot of people say, well, Paul didn't do this kosher. He didn't do this right. This is not legitimate. That Paul would take a text from the Old Testament that speaks of God receiving gifts and turn it around to where God is now giving gifts. Well, again, they just don't understand the theology of the Bible. God's the one who gave first. And another thing that needs to be said is that many times in the Old Testament you see passages that in an Old Testament context has one suitable meaning, but with the coming of Jesus, a new dimension has entered in to human history. And we need to see the Old Testament now in the light of the fact that the Son of God has come. You can't just read the Old Testament on Old Testament terms alone. You've got to read forward. You've got to read with a perspective, looking forward to what God will do. Just as in the New Testament, you've got to read backward to what God has already said, because that new revelation is really dependent upon that old revelation, as in Ephesians 4, where Psalm 68 is quoted. But the point of it all is that God has won the victory. He has triumphed over his enemies, and he has ascended to a mountain. It's a mountain where his presence was, and the mountain of his presence is indicative of that greater reality of an ascent into the heavens. Again, the instructions were given to the nation of Israel to build a tabernacle, and God says, according to the pattern given to you in the mountain. God gave a pattern, and the writer of Hebrews says, this is referring to a heavenly sanctuary. So this earthly sanctuary is but a copy of the true you got a true sanctuary, God's genuine presence in, in the heavens. And again, it's not to say that God's not everywhere. He is everywhere. But there is that special presence that's said to be in heaven, our Father who, who is in heaven. 
Um, and that earthly presence, that earthly special presence on, on, on Sinai or in the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness is but reflective of that greater reality. So when God ascends to a place high above in Israel's life, it pictures God's greater redemption, God's greater triumph over him and his people's enemies than Jesus does when he ascends into the heavenlies. So it's really, it's not an illegitimate use. It's really seeing Psalm 68 in the light of the greater redemption that Jesus has given. So what does Paul say about Psalm 68 in Ephesians chapter 4? We'll turn to Ephesians 4 and we'll see what he says. Paul here is speaking about The life that's worthy of our calling, and the life that's worthy of our calling that understands that we are called not to just be individuals, going off fishing with our Bibles, and um, not having a sense of the fact that we're part of a greater reality, we're part of a redeemed community, we're part of the body of Christ. And so Paul in Ephesians 4 sees the life that's worthy of our calling um, to be in the keeping of unity, the maintaining of unity, diligently maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And there needs to be those graces of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love if we're gonna if we're gonna live with one another in unity. Um, proud people don't get on with anybody. People that think they're always right, they tend not to get along with anybody. But it's these graces of humility, these Christ-like graces are to be in us. And Paul says we maintain this unity in the body of, in the bond of peace, not because we're, we're, we're doing this unity project. It's not because we say, well, let's, let's all get together. Come on, people, now smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Let us love one another right now. You know from the 60s when I come up with those, those songs. But I'm looking at the old folks who know that, uh, that particular song. It's not our project to get unity as a, as a reality. It's not some ecumenical program that the church has determined that will begin. God's already done what's needed. He is already. In chapter 2, the, uh, he's... he's torn down the middle wall of partition that's divided the Jew from the Gentile and here in chapter 4 our unity consists in the sevenfold reality that God himself has forged one body, there is one body, one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all and in all but yet in the face of the unity that we have in these realities that God himself has brought about there is diversity within the body of Christ, within the people of God. And we need to recognize that, that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ is in the business of giving gifts. And it's Christ's gift, the measure of Christ's gift, that determines our function within the body. How we relate to one another in a way that builds up the body in love. That's what he's going to go on to describe, how the body of Christ relates to one another. And uh, Paul says it's in the light of the reality of the gift of Christ, of Christ's gift to his people, that this um, diversity of, 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 of gift is to be expressed for the good of the whole, 
for the good of the whole of the body of Christ. And so he goes on to quote the 68th Psalm. Therefore, it says, don't be surprised that there's a measure of Christ's gift that's given to his people because Christ, who has won our salvation, has not just won our salvation um, to make us just hanging, hanging out and not doing anything, <laughs> but actually doing something of use and utility and, and benefit and edification and, uh, in the lives of one another. When he ascended on high, when he won the victory over his and, and our enemies, and he ascended into the heavenlies, when Jesus entered into the presence of his Father, Acts 2 tells us, being therefore by the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you see in here. No sooner had Jesus ascended into the presence of the Father that this gift, this gift begins. He gives the Holy Spirit to his church. And in giving the Holy Spirit as the great gift, there's also other gifts that go along with that. But then the other thing that seems to be is, again, it's the, it's the freeing of the captives. It's not just he gets for us gifts. He gets us. He gets us. It is the personal freedom of those who are held in captive, held captive to the misery of sin. And so he ascended on high. He led a host of captives. He freed the slaves. He freed the captives. And he gave gifts to men. And when you think of that, he gave gifts to men, freeing the captives. Who are among the captives? Well, really every one of them were among the captives. Uh, Paul, the writer, was among the captives. And at one time, this Paul was a persecutor of the church until the head of the church determined, uh, this will do. And he, on the road to Damascus, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And brought Paul to the knowledge of his grace and salvation. So Paul became a proclaimer of the, of the gospel, an apostle of Christ, though formerly he was a persecutor. Paul's a gift. It was given to the church. So there's gifts that are, 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 are graces and capacities and talents and things we can do in encouraging one another and the rest. And then there are people who are gifts. And people who are given as gifts to the church, uh, generally speaking, have some kind of official formal office within the church. And that's what he's talking about here. That he, he gave gifts to men... Yes, the gifts of, of mercy and of encouragement and, and all of the rest, but also ministry gifts. Ministry gifts. Because he says, well, this whole bit in verses 9 and 10, that he ascended, what does he mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And that's a strange language, but I think it's opened up by Psalm 139. When in Psalm 139, the psalmist speaks of how God curiously wrought him in the lower parts of the earth. In the lower parts of the earth. Well, how is he wrought in the lower parts of the earth? Like Santa's workshop somewhere in the North Pole? No, mommy's womb. That's where he was knit together. He was knit together in his mother's womb. And so this strange language seems to be language, at least in the psalm, that's indicative of the womb of his mother. And so I think this ascension of Jesus on high, he's saying is he's also the one who was incarnate. He came amongst us and shared our human flesh. He descended 
into the womb of the virgin. He was born amongst men. And ultimately all that happened that he might fill all things. This back to chapter 1. That he ascended into the heavenlies and is made head of all the church. Um, head of all things to the church. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him that fills all in all. That he might fill all things. Again, what does that mean? Well, I need more time than just what we have this morning, even if I thought I knew. But um, the point is that, that as Christ ascends, having descended, having been, been incarnate, now he, he, he's reigning in glory. Um, these gifts he gives are the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastor teachers, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like we're Plymouth Brethren. I told, I've told you before that Spurgeon went among the Plymouth Brethren when the Plymouth Brethren began their ministry and, and, and their, their, their movement and one of the hallmarks of the Plymouth Brethren, I think to, still today is that they don't ordain anybody to any formal work of, of ministry so everybody's out at their jobs during the week and they gather together and then they share what they know and the Spurgeon's observation among the Plymouth Brethren when he was there was that nobody knew anything but they all taught one another. <laughs> so we don't want to have those kind of meetings where no one knows anything. And we're all teaching one another what we don't know. That there needs to be some formal ministry recognized teachers in our midst as they had in the early church. The early church had recognized offices. The office, And he begins with these offices that are, I think, offices of the universal church, there is no local church apostle. <laughs> the apostles had the care of all the churches. Still to this day, through their apostolic witness, through the apostolic word. Prophets and teachers and evangelists, these are ministries not of the local church. They're ministries having to do with the universal church. The local church ministry is this final one. Pastors and teachers, pastor teachers, pastor slash teachers. I think they go together. They go together as the offices that are given in the local church for the purposes of edification, for the purposes of teaching and building up the body of Christ. So I think that's what you have there in Ephesians 4. Are there questions? Well, that's what I have for you on Ephesians 4 this morning. <laughs> we have about 25 minutes still. Anybody have a question that uh, you came this morning prepared to, to bring? I'll give you a minute to think. Yes, um, please, Eric, go ahead. The, the charismatics or the health and wealth is that it's the that descended into Yeah, yeah, yeah. The descent to hell is an interesting. Uh, it's in the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. He descended into hell. Um, the reformers believed in the descent into hell, but they believed that the descent to hell had to do with the bearing away of our sins, that the judgment of hell that was meted upon him at the cross. Whether that was the original intent of the framers of the Apostles' Creed, I don't. I don't think so. I think sometimes uh, people take verses like that, or sometimes, uh, you know, First Peter four, uh, where it says that uh, that Jesus went to preach to the spirit that were in prison. 
This is in the days of Noah. So you think there was kind of preaching that went on in the days of Noah because that term seems to define when that preaching took place. But um, yeah, there are, there are these you know, strange notions. And again, the only thing I would tell you about strange notions is if you only see one or two uh, difficult passages that seem to support a strange idea, leave it in the strange category. Just put it away because, I mean, you know, I think those are passages we need to wrestle with, and I think we can wrestle with them on some other basis that's more, more in sync with the rest of the testimony of Scripture that come up with an odd idea that you just don't find anywhere else. So that's just my own understanding that, the, you know, again, it's not that those, th- you know, I usually tell people when I come to something I don't understand in the Bible, that's when the fun begins. <laughs> Not really. You get distressed and depressed. Oh no, what is this all about? But then the process of trying to find an answer usually brings some appreciable rewards. Not always, but uh, hey, we're not going to know everything until we get even in glory. We won't know everything, but we'll know a lot more. But uh, we're not going to know everything in this world. But uh, we wrestle with the text of Scripture trying to see things in the light of other passages of Scripture that teach the same thing. That's, that's why the, the hapax legomenon are difficult passages when you have a whole bunch of phrases and terms and words that are only found in one place and nowhere else. Yeah. But you've got to deal with those too. Michael. I'm sorry, speak up a little. Just as an extension to the previous statement, the um, prosperity gospel teachers, when they say that Jesus descended into hell, they actually feel he had to suffer like a sinner, you know, um, to pay for sins that he, he became, they actually misuse it and actually say he became a sinner and was treated as a sinner in hell. And that's only amongst the health and wealth. Um, yeah. It's almost like these guys stay up all night trying to find <laughs> these strange views to propound. <laughs> you just wonder. You know how in academia today, that uh, usually for people, uh, I, I gave you last week that uh, rather humorous quote about Henry Chadwick, that he, uh, he gained his doctorate taking away Luke's. I know. I personally think he was right that the the terminology of medicine that is in Luke's gospel is not unique to Luke's gospel. It doesn't take a a specially trained doctor. Although sometimes you wonder if the doctors even today are keeping up on the medical journals and reading much with some of the way they answer my questions anyway. But anyway. but sometimes in academia, people are always looking to find some new avenue of inquiry because that's going to be the thing they'll use to get their doctorate. That'll be the thing that will lead to academic advancement. And, and I'm not saying that such projects sometimes are not fruitful. They can be. But we shouldn't be people that are always after new things, after novelty. That was the problem of the uh, Athenians in Acts 17, 
what it said, the people of Athens, they got together in the marketplace to hear and to tell something new. <laughs> it's kind of a humorous statement in uh, commenting upon the propensity to just think that something new is something true. Now, let me just say this. There are people that actually say, if it's new, it's not true. That's not right. There are true things that are new. Or sometimes there are true things that get revived, and we didn't even know that they, we think they're new. We think they're new. I mean, it's funny, I was reading a commentary by uh, D.A. Carson, Donald Carson, on the book of John. And he was, he was commenting upon the 153 fish. I'm sorry. I just, I just love these things with numbers. The 153 fish. And it's funny because he, he didn't want to... Why am I holding this? It's this that's recording. Um, the 153 fish. He brings up the fact that he says it's a new idea. But then he's, in the context of saying this is a new idea... He's saying that, uh, well, St. Jerome connected John 21 with Ezekiel 47. Well, if Jerome, who wrote, he, he translated the, the Old Testament into, he, into Latin, the Vulgate. I mean, you're talking about 4th century, maybe 5th century. You're talking quite a while ago. Jerome was thriving and writing, and he saw that this whole matter of Jesus at, of the disciples fishing and uh, the dragnet and the bringing in of the fish just thematically was there in chapter um, chapter 21 of Luke it's there in Ezekiel 47 just read it you say hey there's lots of stuff here that is almost similar words that are being used and then he says he goes on to say that the whole matter of the 153 being a triangular number remember we talked about a triangular number of 17 if you take 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7 plus 8 plus 9 plus 10 I gotta do this because the people have said I don't get it well keep adding these numbers do it on the calculator add to the whatever you have after 10 add 11 add 12 add 13 add 14 add 15 add 16 when you hit 17 and then put um, plus it comes up to 153 comes up to 153 now I don't know the significance of all the ways that they use it in the ancient world but mathematicians did use it for purposes where they have all these uh, triangles with these little dots in it and I'm not sure exactly I'm not a mathematician uh, it all eludes me I was, I was terrible in algebra worse in geometry I never had to take trigonometry I'm thankful for that but um, so I don't get a lot of the ways that they understood numbers but in the, those were the people that invented geometry and algebra ancient people that we use today in in uh, rocket science and in uh, you know technical in, in technology, same stuff that th these people uncovered. Uh, so they knew quite a bit about numbers. And uh, anyway, so Carson's telling me that Augustine, Saint Augustine, pointed to the fact there was a triangular number. Wait a minute, if you got Jerome talking about this, and you got Augustine talking about this, you're going to say because some modern scholar has now said, has tried to put it all together, and said, well, actually what seems to be happening here is that it's all referring back to the fact that on the shores of the living water that flows from the temple, you have fishermen... <laughs> 
pulling in the dragnet with all these fish of every single kind, and they're at a place called Engedi and Agalayim. And Engedi, the, the numerical value 17. And Agalayim, it's 153. Folks, that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. That then John says 153 fish. He's obviously, he knows, the ancients knew about triangular numbers, just as you know, they knew about prime numbers. We don't know about that. <laughs> we gotta look, we gotta, we gotta Google it. <laughs> but the people in the ancient world didn't need to Google that stuff. They knew it. Uh, there's a scholar named Richard Balkum that says in the um, I don't know if I told you this or not, but Balkum says that in the, uh, in the uh, excavation of ancient Pompeii, I believe that was destroyed by eruption of Mount Etna, that ancient people, they actually found graffiti. Somebody wrote on the wall, I love the girl whose number is. <laughs> and gave the number. Not her name, her number. My wife Jan is 61, by the way. She's 66. 66. Um, no, 61. If you add ET, then it goes up, I think, to 266. Anyway, that system of numbers, you could do it with, with, with our own letter system. You know, 1 to 10, uh, A to J is 1 to 10. J to whatever 20 is, is 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, it goes up by tenths. And then when you get to 21, it goes up by hundredths. And they had, that's, that's the number system that they used to take a name and give it a number. Like Nero being 666. <laughs> you get Bible numbers like David getting 14 in the 14 generations of Matthew's Gospel. It's in the Bible. It's not some trick. It's not some Bible code that somebody came up with with looking to make money on. <laughs> it really is in the text. And, and so That's new to put it all together. Um, but it, all the elements were being spoken of long ago. I mean, things like, uh, you know, we understand today that the poetry of the Old Testament uses what's called parallelism. It, it uses phrases that are related to one another. Um, you know, you take any, any of the Psalms and you see that the thoughts are related to one another. Um, Psalm 6. Just, uh, I just opened my Bible. O Lord, rebuke me, not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Well, you see that first line is related to the second line. In terms of anger in the first line, wrath in the second line. In terms of rebuke in the first line, discipline in the second line. And so you read it is in relationship to one another. And, and one of the key things of understanding the Psalms is understanding what are the relationships of the lines to one another. Historically, that's, these lines here would be called synonymous parallelism. And, and, and that was like in the... There was a, there was a poet laureate of Great Britain... I believe his name was Robert Louth, L-O-W-T-H. And he was a poet laureate in Great Britain. And he came up with this. No one was talking about 
parallelism before Robert Loth. But Robert Loth's system of parallelism, people today say, well, it, it was okay as far as it went, but it really didn't go far enough. And here's how they improve on it, is that there's really no such thing as exact parallelism. There's always a development of thought in the parallel. And so people today improve on things that people did before. It's, so, you know, to just to say something new is not true is just is, is ridiculous, I think, in my own humble estimation, <laughs> making broad statements, humble estimation. I, th- I, think it, um, I think the right statement is just because it's new, it's not true. It's, it's not, not, not necessarily true. Just because, just because it's new. People think the new is always true. New and improved is, is everything is advertised. You know, down to bubblegum. New and improved bubblegum. <laughs> new and improved hairspray or new and improved hot dogs. Everything, everything's new and improved. And that's the reason you go out and you, you, you buy it. it not, new and improved must be better. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Doesn't have to be better. Does, uh, just because it's new, it doesn't necessarily have to be true. That's a far more proper statement. Avoid um, an obsession with novelty. Don't get obsessed by novelty. Don't understand that the ancients have something to say to us. We can't just ignore the witness of the early church. We can't ignore the witness of the reformers. We can't say the Son of Truth has arisen upon our noggins here in 2023 today, and we don't have anything to learn from anybody else but ourselves. That's that's seems to me that's what we want to oppose that notion. Okay. Well, we're getting close to ten thirty, but we're not there yet. I was listening to the other day, and sometimes in the scientific world they say that the, uh, what we see today explains what happened in the past, rather than what happened in the past explains what happened, what we see today. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again. Uh, a lot of uh, archaeology and things of that nature. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah, th- that's really very important to, to understand that we do understand so much more about the ancient world because of archaeology. And, and I've known pastors who simply poo-pooed any thought of, of, of... It's almost like today, you know, sometimes they say if, if the people in the 18th century didn't think it was so... We, we can't have anything in our understanding of life or government that they didn't accept then. And, and so there was this thing that it just came before the Supreme Court, and thankfully they are, they're not taking the point of view that says you have to see it as it was then, because the whole issue came to be whether you take guns away from people who have a history of abusing their spouses. Say, so wait a minute. They didn't take Mel Gibson's gun away from him. He beat his wife and patriot. I don't know that he did. <laughs> I'm just thinking. But that's the thought. If back then they wouldn't have taken his gun away, we shouldn't do it today. Because we should live our lives in the 21st century exactly like they lived back then because the Constitution is written in stone in the way that it can't be interpreted any other way than they would have thought how to interpret it back then. I think that's a really strange view. And thankfully, it came before the court, and they said, no, no, they can actually prohibit people who have a, a track record of spousal abuse. Because that's the major way that women get killed by their spouses. 
they, they have their guns. <laughs> they, they will use them. Um, that's not the only way they kill them. They'll use other things as well. But the point is, you know, we have to recognize that the past can be helpful. And we don't can't ignore it. But um, we can't either glorify it and say it's the last word to be spoken on a subject. Um, so, and I think that's true of biblical interpretation as well. There are people who say that since the ancient writers, if Calvin didn't know that there was such a thing as a suzerain covenant, and I've talked to you about those things before, the covenant of a suzerain. A suzerain was an emperor. An emperor would go out to his wars and he defeat a smaller country who had the king, he'd enter into a covenant with them. And those covenants they would enter into in the ancient world are very, very similar to the way in which God comes to Israel and says, I've taken you on eagle's wings, I've brought you to myself. It goes back over the history of what God did. And now, in light of that, here is what you were to do. And the whole matter of blessings and curses that you find in the book of Deuteronomy, those were in the ancient covenants as well. Um, so I think the fact the Bible uses covenant terminology, uh, we need to recognize that it doesn't use covenant terminology so that we can invent in the 21st century what does, co- what does covenant mean by our own times. You know, back when a lot of the commentaries that were written in the 17th century were written about covenants, it was in the day that, days that Blackstone's commentary on English law began to be written and developed, which governed law in England. And the great theme that was present then was contracts. And so sometimes you hear that uh, people say covenant's a contract. Well, <laughs> not really, but okay. Um, yeah, it's an agree- agreement between two or more parties. It's usually, sometimes you've heard that definition. The covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. Well, no. The agreement between two or more parties isn't like a contract. It's like you get together and you mutually say, well, I'll do this and you do this. And, you know, well, no, I don't think I'm going to want to go that far. It'll be just this. It's negotiated. Bible covenants are not negotiated. Bible covenants are imposed just like ancient emperors would impose their rule, their authority over lesser powers. So it's not just that today we are creatures of our time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry that, yeah, that, that we are creatures of our time and therefore we need to go back to the 17th century to define all those terms. They were creatures of their time as well. <laughs> and so they were going to define covenants by their light. But you know, we have today, I think, more in the way of understanding because we have more data. Because the archaeologists, the archaeologist spade has unearthed so much more information about the ancient world. And why would you want to ignore that? It's kind of like understanding the text of the Bible. The text of the Bible in 1611 had what was called the majority text view. If you had more copies of a reading, that was it. That was it. And, of course, in the ancient world, you would have more copies in places in Europe than you would in other places. They hadn't yet gone to Alexandria to unearth Codex Alexandrinus. Or they hadn't yet gone to wherever it was in uh, the Sinai deserts that they found Sinaiticus, 
These are all ancient documents that were not available to the translators of the King James Bible. They had certain texts, but they didn't have what we have today. And what we have today is older. I mean, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls took Old Testament studies back 900 years. So we have texts today that are 900 years older than the Masoretic texts that the, that the King James translators had. We go back 900 years further to see what is the text of the Old Testament like. You don't think that's your factor in? I think so. I think so. So, again, we should be thankful we have more information uh, today. And let's not, let's not despise it. Not, not, let's not just let our minds get locked in to just certain ways of thinking and be... And think, and think we're being faithful because we just say, well, who, who needs scholarship or who wants information or who needs, you know, let's live like we were living in the 17th century. Well, fine. Um, I particularly enjoy the challenge of understanding fuller and seeing further, partially because we do stand on great men's shoulders, but also because we have fuller information that is available to us that I think we're responsible to um, sift through and understand how it contributes to our understanding of God's Word. Well, we went from Dan to Beersheba this morning with a number of important matters. I think they're important matters. I hope they've been helpful. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the fact we have Your Word and it is truth. And even though we live in times where we have more access to more knowledge and understanding, it doesn't necessarily in itself make us wiser than our, our forebears. We're thankful that your spirit was at work in them. We're thankful we could learn from the early church. We could learn from the medieval church. We can learn from the Reformation church. We could learn from the period of the revivals of religion in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and we pray, Lord, we would be receptive to all we can learn from every area of, um, of understanding. And we're thankful today that we do see far because we do have the legacy of, of those who've gone before us to be our teachers we're also thankful for the knowledge that does come to us through archaeology, the knowledge that comes to us through um, understanding the discovery of new texts of the scriptures and how it bears on our understanding of the original state of the biblical text. And we pray we would not despise any of these things. And we wouldn't just put our head in the sand and say, think that these things have not arisen. Help us to live, Lord, in the light of what you've given us. Help us to benefit and profit. All to the end that we'd know you better. All to the end that we would serve you better. All to the end that we'd be more fit servants of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're thankful that we're able to consider these things this morning. We pray your blessing would be with us. You'd bless us as we greet one another this morning. And as we come into the morning hour of worship, we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.